This morning, we're back into Ecclesiastes. This is our fifth Sunday there. We're just a little over a month. Chapter 5. We're only going to go seven verses, because I know it's Super Bowl Sunday, and you all want to get out of here and get your nachos and your, you know, your soda. Ecclesiastes 5, we're calling this message Approaching God in the Desert. Um, and in an ironic twist, I'm going to start telling you a story about a flood. Um, when I, a couple years ago, my brother had a training up in Anchorage. Him and his wife Ashley went up to Anchorage for this training. She had, I think you were in school too, I think you had something you had to be doing too. So they were up in Anchorage. They asked me, always the single guy, would you house it for us? So I graciously agreed to house it. Well, a couple mornings into the house sitting, I walked downstairs to do my laundry, and I step on the carpet right in front of the laundry, and the carpet is like soaking wet. I'm thinking, that dog peed on the carpet. So I take another step, and it's still wet. And I'm thinking, what in the world? How big was that dog's bladder? And the more I walk around, I'm going, I don't think this was Junie. And what it was actually going on was the basement was flooding. Now, my brother is in the midst of this training. He can't get out of it. Like, it's this mandatory, his work, he's got to stay up there. That's what he's telling me. Um, and so, so here I am, left to kind of deal with this flood. So I had to get, I get Jacob over. We're moving furniture upstairs. You know, I'm calling. I am now a resident expert on all the local, local uh, plumbers in the Kenai Peninsula. So if you have any questions, I can give you some recommendations. Um, so I'm doing all this work. And it was easy in the midst of that to just, as I'm working and trying to fix this flood problem, I'm picturing Jeremy and Ashley up in Anchorage. It's like yucking it up with the Captain Cook, right? They're sipping wine and tickling each other or whatever they're doing. And I'm down here like starring in my own action adventure film, right? Jumping from couch to couch and trying to avoid this disaster. And it was easy in the midst of all this to go, Jeremy, where are you in the midst of this? It's your basement. It's your mess. It's your, I'm not bitter, I swear. Um, (laughs) Where are you in the midst of this mess? And I think it's easy for us, Solomon's kind of led us through these first four chapters, and we're kind of standing in this flooding basement of our lives, sort of waist deep in this rubble, and, and we're looking around at everything we've built, everything we've chased after, and he goes, it's all meaningless. It's all chasing after the wind, and in the midst of it, it's easy to start asking the questions, right? And in fact, these questions are piled so high, we can't even see God in the midst of them. Because the biggest question is, God, where are you in the midst of all this? Where are you? Like, this is your creation. You put me here on this earth. Now you leave me with all this meaninglessness and no purpose and no value. What is the deal? And you told me back in chapter 3 that you're using all of this, to making it all beautiful in its time, Well, right now, all I see is disappointment, and all I see is hopelessness. Where are you? And David, he had a similar journey with God um, in Psalm 73. David looks around, and he saw like Solomon did. He said, all this injustice. He goes, look, all these people who are doing right, they have nothing but failure. And all the wicked people, the people who are doing wrong, they're prospering. He goes, God, none of this makes sense to me. And it's interesting, in verse 16, he goes, when I tried to understand all this, it deeply troubled me. Because when I tried to make sense of it between my own ears, it didn't add up. But then what he says is is fascinating. Next. He says in verse 17, Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. He says what changed for me is when I got a glimpse of God and who he is 
and where all this is going in light of him, Matthew Henry said it this way. He said, let our, let our disappointments in the creature turn our eyes to the creator. Let our disappointments in the creature, what we see is we look around here under the sun and we see nothing but disappointment, nothing but meaninglessness. He says, let that turn you. The only place you're going to find hope is not in any of that creation. It's going to be in the creator. What we're going to see this morning in, in Ecclesiastes 5 is when we get an eyeful of who God really is, our perspective will begin to change because the problem is never our circumstance. The problem is our perspective in that circumstance. Now Solomon, he's going to start by here. He's going to say, when you go to the house of God, when you go to the house of God, and it's important here to unpack what he would have been thinking when he said the house of God is different than what we would think um, today. When, when Solomon talks about the house of God, see, um, when the, remember when Egypt, when, when, the, uh, when God delivered the people of Israel from Egypt, when they start moving through the desert, there was this tabernacle they would set up. It was temporary, it was portable, um, and what it was, is it kind of symbolized, it was also called the tent of meeting, and it was a place where the people would go to worship God, to offer sacrifices, where this is the animal sacrifice time, when they would sacrifice animals for their sins to represent the blood that must be shed uh, for all sin. Well, once they get into the promised land, God says, I'm going to set up a permanent structure. That tabernacle was a shadow of something to come, so they build this temple, and it was left to Solomon. It was his job to build the temple. This temple was no joke. Seven years it took to construct this thing. 180,000 workers to build this thing. And in, in, in today's uh, money, that would be th- they spent about three to six billion dollars on this temple because of what it represented. Now, the the temple represented, it was a symbol of God's presence. There's this word, this this phrase they would use in the Old Testament, the Shekinah glory, which you can't really say without using a southern accent. The Shekinah glory, right? I don't know if that's a southern accent. Um, But this glory of God, his presence, this glorious, unapproachable presence was, was seen filling this temple. Look at what, this is, this is unbelievable. In Second Chronicles 7, um, they're about to dedicate the temple that's just gotten seven years. Now they're going to dedicate it to God. And this is what happens. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven, okay? Are you tracking with this? Like, you're here, fire is coming down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. How terrifying and wonderful to have been there. The priests could not even enter the temple because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of God, of the Lord above the temple, they knelt, this is their response, okay? They knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, he is good, his love endures forever. When they get a glimpse of the Shekinah glory in the temple, their knee-jerk reaction is to fall on those knees in worship of who God is. Now, he said a chapter before in 2 Chronicles 6, Solomon says, listen, the temple doesn't contain God. He says, in fact, the heavens and the earth can't contain God. God, but God has chosen to come and fill this temple with his glory because of how much he loves and wants a relationship with Israel. 
And as you know, the Holy of Holies was a place inside of the temple that no one could enter. You would die if you went into it. In fact, only the high priest could enter. And he could only enter once a year to make atonement for the people, for the sins of Israel. And this is, they took it very, very seriously. You see, in other words, as the Israelites approached the house of the glory of God, they didn't just waltz in. Right? They don't just flop their sandals up on the table of showbread. and like, God, what is happening, my man? It is good to see you again, bro. You mean, you know, the dad, like, this is, no, they understood the reverence and the honor that God was worthy of as they would enter the presence of the Shekinah glory. And they sacrificed and they worshiped. Now, here's a beautiful truth. God's glory no longer dwells in the temple you know where his glory, you know where his glory dwells today? The Shekinah glory is in us. This is, I, our human minds cannot wrap around this concept. First Corinthians, Paul says, Didn't, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst That Shekinah glory, that awe-inspiring, knee-bending, worship-induced presence no longer dwells in the presence of the temple. It's in the presence of the believers that are sitting in this room today. And therefore, there is nothing more important than what we think about our God and how we approach that kind of glory. Three cautions. Three cautions Solomon's going to give us as we enter into the presence of God. Three cautions. He says, first of all, he's going to say, watch your step, then watch your mouth, and then finally watch your vows. That's where we're going this morning. The first one, watch your step. He says, be careful as you approach the throne. Guard your steps, Solomon says, verse 1. This is chapter 5. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Guard your steps. Now, you remember the story back in 1 Samuel 15? Solomon, King Saul, um, he learns this the hard way. Um, Remember, God told Saul, he says, I want you to completely wipe out the Amalekites. And he's very specific. He says, I want you to kill every animal, every person, man, woman, child. Okay, this is intense. This is God's word. Wipe out everyone. And so Solomon does, or Saul, sorry, there's a lot of lot of names that are similar to this morning. I'm going to try to get it straight. Saul, he goes ham on the Amalekites, right? He just wipes them out completely. But as he starts looking around, he sees some of these animals. He's like, man, some tasty treats here. He's like got visions of T-bone steaks in his head, some mutton chops. He's like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to save the good animals, the tasty animals, and we're going to get rid of the dying and the, the sick animals. So Samuel, God's prophet, he comes to Saul and he goes, Saul, um, did, you, did you do what God asked you to do? And, and Saul says, oh yeah, I wiped him out. Like, didn't you see? That's pretty good, right? I just dominated those Amalekites. And Samuel goes, sheep. I, I hear sheep. Why do I hear sheep and cattle? Why do I hear, what part of all did you not understand, Saul? Okay, what why do I still hear cattle and, and sheep? And, and Solomon, or Saul, he goes, no, it's, it's totally cool. He goes, I saved, I saved the, these, then you'll like this, Samuel. I saved some of the best ones to sacrifice to God. Like, we're going we're gonna to bring those, you know, the burnt offerings, the sacrifice thing we're going to do, we're going to do that. Isn't that, it was not, pretty impressive, huh? Pretty good thinking, wasn't it? And here's Samuel's response. 
He says, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? And here's the famous quote. I think this is in your blanks. To obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divinations, like witchcraft. And and arrogance is like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has rejected you as king. He goes, I don't want your sacrifices if you are not obeying. And because of Saul's disobedience, he gets his crown stripped away from him. And that's what Solomon says here in Ecclesiastes. He goes, look, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. And he says, go near to listen. In the Old Testament, that's always coupled. You're listening, you're heeding, you're obeying. It's go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. He says, look, sacrifices are not substitutes for obedience sacrifices are not substitutes for obedience. In other words, God says, listen, you think that you can run around all week kind of doing your own thing, your own agenda, living for you, and then you show up at church on a Sunday morning at 11 a.m., you, you sing a song, you drop a five into the plate, and you think you're good? You think you're good? I don't want your stinking five. I want your heart. I want you. I want all of you. And that's why he calls it the sacrifice of fools, because it is only the fool thinks that he can deceive God. Now you can live your own way, do your own thing, and then offer some sacrifices to him. He's like, oh, thanks, man. Thanks for the... No. Now, we're not called to offer animal sacrifices like they were in the Old Testament. Hebrews 10 tells us Jesus came and was our final substitute. It's over. The, the, the payment has been completely satisfied through Jesus. But we are called as believers, as those who are alive, who have risen from the grave, is to offer our new lives to him. Romans 12 says, present yourselves to God as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual act of what? Of worship. Warren Wearsby said it this way, the worship of God is the highest ministry of the church. This is what we're about, is to magnify, to think rightly about God and to praise him therein. He says that's the most important thing. That's your, your ultimate job, your goal, your heart, your life, and it must come from devoted hearts and yielded wills, not from offering plates and empty praise. He says, you want to come to me rightly, you offer your life to me. He who hates his life will save it. So how do we watch our steps? How do we do this? How do we guard our, our approach to God? Not just on Sunday mornings. This is not about the glory of God is no longer in a building. It's not coming into this gym. It's the people of God. It's our hearts. How do we guard this? Well, listen, if I'm walking and I have a glass of water and you bump into me, what spills out of that glass? So whatever's in the cup, right? If I've got diet soda for some unknown reason, I must be bringing it to somebody else because I'm not drinking diet soda. And you bump into me, that's, whatever's in the cup is what comes out of the cup. And so listen, as we bump into each other throughout the week, what comes out? What comes out? It's what we've been putting in all week long. Now we can fake and we can wear the mask, but what's truly in our hearts is what's going to come out. And that's why Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, 
there the desires of your heart will also be. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. I'm going to desire the things that I treasure. And what am I going to treasure? It's going to be the things that I consistently put before myself and chase after. That's why he starts by saying, guard your heart. The literal words, and I love this, he said, pay attention to the direction of your feet. That's the call. Pay attention. Are you walking throughout the week? Are you intentionally walking toward the presence and the throne of God? Or are you walking toward vanity? Are you walking toward meaningless, temporary, destruction-filled things in your life? Where are you walking? And we can't just feed ourselves garbage all week long. And this goes to me just as much as to the next person. We can't feed our hearts garbage all week and then show up and expect John or Jacob to play the right song or Justin gives me the right verse and, oh, yeah, there we go. We're good. You know, I put a little extra in the plate this week. God's going to love that. No, this is a 24-7 thing. That's why Paul said, pray without ceasing. Rejoice in the Lord always. Always be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have in your heart. Be ready to preach the word in season and out of season at all times. Where is our heart? And I have, I have two pieces of advice in this. Number one is that, listen, intimacy, intimacy with God comes through knowing his word, and then more importantly, believing it. Intimacy with God, which our hearts were created for, what we long for. Intimacy with God comes from knowing his word, his, the truth in his word, and then more importantly, believing that truth. You, me, you, not, not your spouse, not your your kid, not your pastor, not your friend, you and I, we have to wrestle with scriptures for ourselves. And here's what we have to decide. We have to decide if what God is telling you in his word is true or if he's just kidding. We have to come, do we we really believe this thing or is it just a joke? And you know, for me in the dry times, and I'm just not feeling it, and I don't, it's, I'm just not there. A lot of times what I will do is I'll just simply read the Psalms back to God, read them humbly to him, kind of speak them, you know, and I'll say, God, you say right here, you said you, said you won't leave me or you won't forsake me. Um, and, I, and I know you know that, but I'm just kind of reminding you, because right now it feels like you've turned your back on me, it feels like you've forgotten me. Um, and so I'm just going to claim this promise even though I don't feel it. And what I'd encourage you to do is to draw near, to listen, put yourself under scripture, listen to his promises, and hold on to them even when you're not feeling it, even in the desert, in the dry times. And the second thing I would say is, you know, Pastor Larry told us in his final sermon, he said, um, we need to read the Bible a lot more than we need to read about the Bible. So a lot of times it's very easy to go to secondary sources, listen to this good speaker or whatever. We need to primarily be in the word itself, but we could all agree that sometimes the Bible is just kind of weird and confusing and it's this big book and how do we make sense of it all how do we understand it we're actually gonna we're looking at kicking a series off this fall it's gonna help us look at how this whole story fits together and what god is kind of telling us in it um but but at the same time i would advise you on top of the teaching and community that we have here at peninsula grace we live in this age of of this this technology explosion Now, we know there's a lot of bad things that come with it. There's also a lot of wonderful, redeeming things that can come from it. And what I would advise you, and I'm talking to myself as well, is put yourself under God-saturated, Bible-filled men who are teaching the Word of God 
and listen to them constantly, especially when you're in the desert, especially when you're in the dry times. Now, it's easier than, now than ever before because of the internet. Like we live in this age, and especially with podcasts, and if you're like, pod what? Um, ask someone under 30 or Google it. And if you're like, Google, I cannot help you. <laughs> Sorry. It's, uh, you're in 1997, and I don't have that kind of time. Um, but these resources are incredible, and I have them there at the bottom of that first page of notes. Um, oh, there's my advice for you. I won't even charge you a nickel. Um, the, the, here's some men who, who are, are excellent. They, they know the word and they explain it clearly. I have these in your notes as well. Um, a lot of different kind of men here. You're not going to agree with everything they say, or at least you shouldn't always be the Berean who's checking what they're saying with the word. But there's a diversity of guys up here, because um, I know our hearts are going to resonate with different speakers. And um, so there's different kinds and styles and flavors here. But these are men who I've personally listened to and sat underneath of. And, and they do a great job at explaining the word. Again, don't substitute this for the word itself. But download these podcasts. Listen to these. They're also on your computer. And, and the point is, while you're doing dishes, while you're on a walk, these different times, that these pockets of time we have throughout the day, put yourself under the teaching of the word. And the main point is, because when you do this, when you saturate yourself with God's truth, You stop offering the sacrifice of fools and you start offering real sacrifices. It's not just, well, I'm going to tithe more, God, or I'm going to go to church more, God. What he's looking for is obedience and he's looking for repentance. That's only going to come as we know him and are intimate with him. Secondly, he says, watch your mouth. First one was watch your heart, or watch your step. Second one is watch your mouth. Now, we all run with a crew, right? You got a group of friends, a posse that you're kind of, and and each of those groups, there's like that guy or that girl. And what I mean by that is like when you get the phone call and the caller ID pops up and you're like, oh, like I don't have that kind of time. You know what I'm talking about? Like, you know, even if it's just a quick question, it, it becomes an hour conversation. Um, and, and if you're like, no, we actually don't have anybody like that in our group you're that guy, right? <laughs> you're that girl. You're like, we don't, no, we don't. No, you're the one. Um, that would explain all the voicemails. Um, but, and this is, I'll tell you what, you talk about, you know, sometimes people come up to me afterwards like, man, that seemed like that was directly, uh, you know, preached to me. And I was like, yeah, it was, actually, no. Um, this one, it was like, okay, this is, this is for Justin. Um, he says, do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart. And hear this to utter anything before God. God is in heaven. You are here on earth, so let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. He warns us against two things here. Number one, don't be hasty with your words. Don't just speak without thinking. And number two, you know, they call that the, uh, what's a better when the bow movement of the mouth. Is that, we'll say that. Don't say too much. Um, imagine for a second that you were granted this trip to go to the White House, and you get the privilege, and I know we have different feelings on presidents at different times, but you get the privilege of standing before the president for five minutes. You get five minutes, okay? And you can, you can bring your needs, your requests of the community, of your, of your own, your families, and you get five minutes with the commander-in-chief, chance of a lifetime, now, 
you don't just show up, right? Like, just kind of wing it. Well, we'll see what happens. No, you are agonizingly preparing, like, your questions, what you're going to say, what you're going to wear, how you're going to present yourself. You're thinking through all of these things because you're entering the presence of the, of the, the ruler, the, the most powerful man in the most powerful country in the world. Well, then think about how we prepare ourselves when we enter the throne room of the God of the universe. And how often we can just kind of flippantly, casually approach him like a buddy. Or we go the other way and we try to impress him with our, with our words. And, and, you know, and, and we'll he'll come and we'll talk in like these KJV type language, the these and the thouts. And Lord, you fill us our cupeth with what, you know, all stuff. And it's like nobody talks like that. And yet we think that we got to go to God like that because he's only going to hear us if we dress things up right. Well, Jesus said, don't babble on like the Pharisees. So how do we approach God rightly with our words? Alistair Begg, he's one of the guys, he has an Irish accent, by the way, really, really, everything's cooler with an Irish accent. He, um, he's one of the guys on, on the podcast list. He had three little reminders as he was talking about Ecclesiastes 5 that were really helpful for me in how we approach God in prayer. Three little things that we can kind of grab onto. He says, tune in, fess up, and bow down. Tune in, fess up, and bow down. When we tune in, he says, come to God thinking about God, not yourself. How easy is it to approach the throne and just, God, I got all these things. I got this laundry list of things I need to bring to you and you need to help my aunt and my sister. And you start going on and on. He says, no, when you come to the throne room, know who it is. Think of who it is that you're talking to. And what I would recommend, there's some amazing passages, Ezekiel 10, Isaiah 6, Revelation 4, um, some of these passages just sort of where words fail, and there's just sort of this picture painted of, of what the presence of God is, what he is like on his throne to, to consider. We kind of tune in, dial into the one that you're talking to. And the second one is fess up. Fess up to, you know, in light of who God is and who we are, the call is to come just as we are. Not showy, not wordy, but honestly. You realize God is never going to, to send you away because you came honestly. You know, you think of like in the Psalms when, when David says in Psalm 13, he goes, God, how long are you going to forget about me? How long are you, are you just going to forget about me forever? Are you going to desert me forever? And God doesn't just go, you know, he doesn't kind of walk up to him and just say, you know, David, I'm God, okay? Do you remember? I don't, I don't, I don't forget things. Therefore, your prayer is a lie, and I must leave you in the desert. Good luck, because it's brutal out there. Yahweh out, right? No, he comes to David in, in this cry of, of honesty. David feels abandoned. Later on in that same psalm, he acknowledges, you're never going to leave me or forsake me. But he says, I feel abandoned. And in turn, David doesn't then get abandoned by God. No, God draws near. He draws near to the honest prayer. God's big enough for us to yell at him. God's big enough, big enough for us to be confused by him, to question him, because to, to, he knows what's in your heart. So we might as well be honest with him in that. And we come naked and we come unashamed, confessing who we really are and confessing him as the Savior from who we really are. And then finally, we bow down. Um, we surrender our lives to him. And we echo Jesus' prayer in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. 
we tune in, we fess up, and we bow down, and we're actually going to do that together at the conclusion of the service. The third one is, and the final one, is watch your vows. Um, the Old Testament vows were taken very, very seriously. They were seen as this act of dedication to the Lord, and they were this binding thing. If you made a promise to God, you held, he held you to that promise. Um, and you remember that story of Jephthah, uh, Judges 11, and, and he comes and he says, God, if you give me victory over the Ammonites, I will sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my house. Okay, and I don't know if he's like normally greeted by goats or like what he was expecting to happen, but his daughter comes walking out of the, the door with a tambourine celebrating daddy's victory. Now, there are, there are some, there are different takes on if he actually sacrificed her, like actually killed her, or versus dedicating her, kind of like Hannah did with Samuel to the temple. There's, there's different kind of takes on what that meant. But the point is, Solomon says, you better be very, very careful when you're making a vow to God, because he will hold you to that vow. He says in verse 4, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow at all. He says, better just not even make one than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin and do not protest the temple messenger and say, my, my vow is a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. Have you ever made a promise to God and then when it came time to kind of cash in on that promise, you're sort of the, the deer in the proverbial headlights? Um, you know, for me, I'll do that sometimes. Like when I'm in bed, I'm all pumped up and I'm like, God, I'm going to do this. Like tomorrow, I promise you, I'm going to talk to that person. I'm going to have that conversation. And the next morning, when you're actually sitting across from that person, you're just like, you're pretty, you know, like, you, and you can't say what you, and then you're like, God, we didn't have time, like, you know, the conversation kind of just didn't feel, you know, and we'll make kind of these excuses, or, you know, maybe last week you were here, and we were talking about the call to community, that could be a scary move for some of us, and there's a call, like, maybe it's, you know, go to a home group, you know, call a home group, and you're just, like, in the midst, we had prayer time, you're just like, we're gonna do this, you know, yeah, you're kind of psyching yourself up, I'm gonna make that phone call, you know, or I will, I will give you my firstborn child, Lord, you know, and the next week, I've got your firstborn here at the church doing yard work, and, you know, be careful what you wish for. Um, but don't we do that? We say, God, we barter with God. We say, listen, if you'll come through for me in this, like, I'll go to the mission field. I will go to China, right? I will give all my money to the poor. I'll pray more. I'll tithe more, whatever. And, and we call this a foxhole Christianity, Meaning when we're backs are, when our backs are against the wall, we start to bargain with God. And it's a dangerous, dangerous game because Jesus said in, in Matthew 12, um, oops, he said, I tell you this, you must give an account on judgment day for every idle word you speak. You hear that? Every idle, even if you just said it flippantly, sarcastically, he goes, listen, the things that come out of your mouth, like you're going to be accountable for those things. So we need to be very careful. Now, it's not to say vows are bad. David himself said in Psalm 66, Now I come to your temple with burnt offerings to fulfill the vows I made to you. Yes, the sacred vows that I made when I was in deep trouble. So when he was in trouble, he made these promises. He says, Now I'm going to come fulfill these promises that I made to you, God. There was a, a man, a young man once, who was walking through a field in Germany, and there was this electrical storm, and this lightning bolt strikes right next to him. And he's freaking out, and he goes, God, if you save me, I will become a monk. 
And this man is saved, and he does become a monk, and is Martin, Martin Luther, not, not the one we celebrated, got the day off of school for last month. We're talking about the white one, okay? So he takes that vow seriously, and he cashes in on it, but most rash vows do not have that kind of a happy ending. And that's why Solomon's point here is, listen, life is meaningless. Under the sun, apart from God, you're going to find a lot of heartbreak and disappointment, and you're going to be in the desert. But don't go rushing off blaming God. Don't come babbling to God. Don't come make rash promises to God. He says, watch your step. Know where you're going. Watch your mouth. Know who you're talking to. And watch your vows. Because we'll be held accountable. And let God be God. And the last thing he says here, he goes, therefore, fear God. Therefore, fear God. And so you say, well, how do I know when I'm living, when I am living in the fear of God? How do I know when I'm doing that? Um, Because this is the conclusion, not just of these seven verses, but we're actually going to find at the end of this book, this is where he lands. This is where he parks the car, the fear of the Lord. And you say, how do I know if I'm living in the fear of the Lord? Well, a litmus test that you can use is to say, before I do anything, before I say anything, before I think anything at all, do I ask this question? Will my father approve? Will my father approve? Is it, is it my will or is it his will? And if it's not from him, if it's not what he wants, then I don't want it and I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to think it. But this only comes when we trust him. Intimacy with our God only comes when we trust our God. And these, these promises that he's made to us and who he is for us, if we don't trust him in that, we're never going to surrender our wills to his. We're going to be scared of what he does with it. So instead of me now, ironically, babbling on and on about not babbling on and on, um, here's how we're going to finish this. The, the band's going to come up, and we're going to do this together. Uh, we're going to tune in, we're going to fess up, and we're going to bow down. And this is, this is what we're called to do, to remember who it is that we're going to, um, and to confess both who we are and who he is, and then to bow down, and not, not necessarily just physically, although we can do that, but to bow the heart and to surrender the will and to remember he is God in heaven. We are here on earth, so we should let our words be few. Let's approach the throne in the midst of the desert that we find ourselves in.